Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. I hope that you are breathing in and breathing out. Inhaling and expanding. It's when I connect to my breath that it helps me to feel present, mindful, uh, reduces my anxiety levels. And it's important to connect with breath even before we start the day. Uh, a lot of times we practice our, some, our breathing technique or breathing into a bag once, you know, crap has hit the fan. But if we make it a practice of just checking in with ourselves and, and feeling our feet on the ground, feeling the clothes on our back, then, then things don't build up so much inside of us that, uh, that then we then explode or become undone. I'm excited about today's guest, we have Courtney Armstrong, who is a licensed professional counselor and nationally board-certified fellow in clinical hypnotherapy who specializes in grief and trauma recovery. With a career spanning more than two decades, she is the founder of the Institute of for Trauma-Informed Hypnotherapy and developed her trauma-informed hypnotherapy approach after studying with numerous trauma experts and helping thousands of clients overcome trauma and grief. Known for her warm, engaging teaching style, Courtney offers both live and online training to mental health professionals in trauma-informed hypnotherapy and other experiential brain-based strategies that help clients access inner resources for healing. Today, she's here to talk about her new book, Rethinking Trauma Treatment, Attachment, memory consolidation, and resilience. I'm excited about today's episode. This is powerful and one that I, I will listen to over and over again. Uh, we we had a blast, and and not only did we have fun, it was informative. She she was Courtney was the, this was the perfect mix of stats, of information and stories and anecdotes, and uh, I wanted to to last longer. Today we talk about the six steps for transforming grief. And this is grief whether you've lost your job, whether you're divorced, whether you've lost uh, someone close to you, uh, or just a loss of lifestyle. We talk about all forms of grief. We talk about the difference between ritual and routine. I had no idea there was a difference. And then I was like, damn, there's a difference. Uh, we get into why if you're, if you're a person trying to lose weight or achieve any goal, we're going to talk about why you should be videotaping yourself doing it, right? So it's to stay motivated. This is how you're going to stay motivated. And we're going to talk about how and why you should videotape yourself. Uh, you're going to love that part. Uh, we talk about how to create your own closure. A lot of us are always trying to figure out why something happened and why me and, and so on and so forth. But we talk about how to create your own closure, okay? And 
real powerfully, we get into when cognitive behavioral therapy doesn't work for people who are having suicidal ideations. There's a time and place for every modality. That's why there's so many different treatment options from art therapy to cognitive behavioral therapy, et cetera, et cetera. There's a time and place for it. And we get into the specifics as to when cognitive behavioral therapy does not work and what to put in place of it. We even get into how men and women grieve differently. Now, this is important because how men and women grieve differently, uh, we, we see a, a spike in divorce rates where there's been a loss, especially if a couple has lost a kid uh, or, uh, or one of their kids have passed or ended their lives in suicide. It creates this rift. And uh, we talk about the importance of, uh, uh, of the characteristics of how men and women grieve differently. And then also how uh, people who are time-oriented versus task-oriented grieve differently. So that's very powerful. And then my favorite part of this episode was we talk about a therapeutic playlist. How do you make, if you're, if you're grieving, uh, and I, this has changed not only how I'm going to grieve from now on, because uh, I do plan on grieving uh, more. I, I, I'm 44. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more losses. Um, but also how to make a workout playlist. Oh, yeah. This, this is We're covering all the things in this episode. We're going to have a blast. Uh, and you're going to enjoy this. Uh, thank you for sharing. Uh, the, the, the downloads, are, the podcast is just growing. We're expanding. Uh, there's so many countries now that uh, are, are listening to the uh, episode, and it, uh, I mean, right now we have uh, Germany. We have people in Germany listening, and in the Philippines, and Australia, we, of course, the UK and United States and, and Canada. So I just want to shout you all out for, for tuning in. And uh, we got people out there, and I see uh, South Carolina and uh, Pennsylvania, New York, uh, Illinois. And uh, in San Fran, you know, so the, the, listen, we had there's so many people listening and tuning in. I just want to thank you all for not just listening, but for sharing the episodes, because that's how we grow and for rating it five stars on iTunes. Um, and so remember, the, the link to the suicide numbers are all in the show notes, whether you're local or global. Uh, we have numbers, we have chat, we have group, all that stuff is in there. And then uh, you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Uh, with that said, let's jump into the episode. Uh, yeah, you, you sound like a, a fun person. Where, now, are you from uh, that area? I'm or, from Atlanta, but we used to go to Savannah a lot growing up. And then I lived in New Orleans for a little while. And Savannah is like a little miniature to uh, New Orleans to me. And so Savannah has that same cultural blend of you've got just all of these wonderful cultures that come together and create what we call the low country. So you've got, you know, African-Americans, people from the Caribbean, um, French, Spanish, you know, and of course, Scots, Irish, English uh, in there and Native American. But it's like the all of that blend of cultures comes together to create such good music and food and, and this uh, hospitality and creativity that you will see in Charleston 
uh, Savannah and New Orleans. So that they all kind of have that same vibe to them. So, you know, there, there is, you know, there, there is also, you know, some pretty awful history there, but I think that it, it has come a long way in celebrating the diversity of the region. And so I really hope you have a good time. Well, you know what, what I love about, I mean, you brought up New Orleans, talking about Savannah, Georgia, and you're talking about the awful history and, uh, and, you know, with New Orleans, you had the the tsunami that people are still recovering from and uh, Savannah, Georgia, the, the history of slavery and, and you got the cemeteries and, uh, you know, and, and there's a what's interesting is that I think when we talk about grief, we usually talk about the loss of a, of a person. And mm-hmm. sometimes there's like also the loss of. Uh, a, a, of a lifestyle or livelihood like you have with the tsunami. Um, yes. And then was... in Georgia, you have the... Oh, we got the dog sorry. barking. <laughs> I am so sorry. I don't know. She usually... I'm sorry. She'll probably stop in a minute. Uh, I am so sorry, Leo. No, this is this is great because, you know, this is the quarantine for the listeners out there. And, and so things get real now. Like, we, you know, yeah. before the quarantine, you, you didn't know what kind of house your boss had or how many kids they, they you know, you, you didn't know what their background looked like. And now we're, we're learning, we're, we're, we're peeling back the curtains on oh, yes. how things get made. So. Oh, exactly. <laughs> That's a good analogy. <laughs> yes. So generally she's quiet, but yeah, she uh, uh, probably somebody came to leave a package on our door and that, that'll get her barking. But, but let, let's keep rolling because I love what you're bringing up when you're talking about loss in a greater sense. Yeah, be- because especially now with the with the quarantine and people have lost their jobs and uh, uh, routines, they've lost their routine. A lot of people because they're, they're homeschooling. Yes. Uh, yes. Can we? Uh, so when we, because I know you know you're a trauma therapist. How can, can we apply those stages of grief to this same situation? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So. You know, what we call those numbs in the field is disenfranchised loss because people don't acknowledge it as a loss because if you don't have an actual death. But there's so many forms of loss that can really wreak havoc on your life and your identity. And, you know, a loss is anything that that you had some, you know, sense of attachment to, and it could just be, you know, your daily routine and that getting disrupted throws off so many other things. And you might feel silly because you feel edgy or panicky. But what I like to tell my clients is that our emotional brain thinks different from our rational brain. Our emotional brain thinks like an animal. And so it responds to these changes in a, in a panic. And so it, it's like, what the heck's going on? Just like you heard my dog barking, like anything out of the ordinary gets that emotional part of your brain on alert, like it does your dog. And so your nervous system can be really edged up and you can feel, you know, silly because you're trying to calm yourself down or you think, gosh, I'm overreacting to something. But really, I think 
with the recent events, there's so much uncertainty in our world. And that also keeps us from being able to find our bearings right now. So I think we're in a prolonged period of grief right now because we don't really know what this is going to look like long term, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And for the listeners out there who are really struggling with this feeling of uncertainty and for and as a reminder to myself, like it, there's there's always uncertainty. It, it's just a, a matter of like true how you your perception of the feeling of it right like that's right um can you speak more to that like you are so right so when i talk about dealing with grief whether it's you know a grief over a specific relationship in your life or these larger issues one of the first things that i think can really help us is mindfulness and i know it sounds cliche but really you know, some of, of the Buddhist philosophy is that suffering is inevitable and that nothing is permanent, that life is always changing. And the the faster we can get to a place of acceptance around that and accept that the only thing that's certain is how we respond to something, you know, and how we can manage all the uncertainty or chaos around us is really to take at least a few minutes a day to get present. It doesn't mean you have to meditate formally, but really to just get yourself physically present, getting mindful of what can I see right now? What can I feel? What can I hear? What can I touch? Or even standing outside, you know, on solid earth can do more than you think to help you kind of feel a sense of groundedness and stability, even if it's only for a moment. And, you know, if you pay attention, things are always changing. Nothing's the same moment to moment. And what the challenge is for us is to learn how to accept and just adapt to that and have security within ourselves that we'll we'll figure it out within ourselves or within our community how to respond to something and and not to give in to all of the fear but to notice where there is unity, where there is love, where there is, you know, some interest in moving forward in positive ways with the people around you. And we have to really work to find those people and those things that we can ground ourselves into during times like this, because we're bombarded with so much negative news. You know, I, I love that you mentioned, uh, I want to unpack a few things that you brought up. Yeah. One is in terms of mindfulness, because you're right, like that's a word that gets brought up a lot and people are like, all right, what does that even mean? Do I have to sit and meditate? Do I have to chew right. my food 50 times? Like, <laughs> like what right. do I have to do? Exactly. And, and I love that you, you talked about in terms of being mindful, it's, it's about tapping into your senses. It's about yes. feeling like, like in yoga. One of the things I find that really grounds me is when they say, you know, notice your feet on the mat, notice your hands on the mat. And that it really does that, that type of, uh, uh, of grounding through your senses does yes. help you be present. Yes. I'm so glad that you use that. that it, I'm, you may have to edit that. I'm so glad you used that example, Leo, because it's it's that micro focus, you know, and it is getting 
connecting through your senses. When you talked about um, adapting and accepting and, and trusting yourself, you know, one of the things that uh, uh, helps me to trust myself, because I know a lot of people struggle with trusting themselves, is to remind yourself of past uh, things that you've done um, that are obstacles that you've overcome or times mm-hmm. that you've been um, a good person to speak, you know, quote unquote, meaning like yeah. a time you help somebody else. Are there are there how, are there other ways that we can uh, regain trust in ourselves? Yes, I think that you're bringing up some great points about bringing your attention back to where you know that you've you've made decisions that made sense based on that moment in time, especially. So there will be times that you feel good about decisions that you've made. And what, even if there's, you know, we all make decisions we regret too, but if you look back at the circumstances, a lot of times you can see that based how the circumstances presented themselves at that moment with the information and the skills that you had, you made the best decision based on all of those things coming together in the moment. And, and then maybe you learned a really hard lesson from the decision that you made, but now you've got that knowledge and that skill. So I think we have to, to tap into what doesn't just seem right logically, but, but what feels right to us based on our values, like not just doing what everybody else is doing, but really doing some self-reflection and saying, you know what, these kinds of events that we're dealing with, you know, will force us, I think, to evaluate what are our values, what are my values, and what do I want to do with this situation? So whether it's, you know, you lost your job due to COVID, you know, it makes you have to step back and think, what do I really want to do with my life or what really is the best use of my energy right now, or even, you know, with all of these horrible things that have been going on with police brutality and the protests and, and wanting to advocate, you know, and for civil rights, you you really have to, I think, trust that you have a lifetime of wisdom that's coming together and it, you may feel called right now to do something, but, but figure out what makes sense for me. Like you don't have to respond to every single need there is right now, but to trust what feels like the best use of your time and energy based on your experience, your, you know, your resources and your time. You know, uh, such a a valuable point. I I love that you, you talk about how, in times of crisis and in times of loss, it's a time to reevaluate our values and, and yes. what's important to us and, and reprioritize that. I like that. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing it myself. You know, you think you know yourself. <laughs> and especially we therapists, you know, we were always analyzing ourselves. But, but really, I have found that, you know, this year has really caused me to step back and and reprioritize some things. And even though it was really difficult and confusing in the moment, I'm actually feeling more centered than I felt in a long time because I'm really realizing what's important to me. And I hope some of your listeners are 
realizing that too. So what was something that you had as a top priority that maybe got notched down and now you've moved something else up or even added something or taken something out of there? Yeah, uh, that is a great question. So what I had been focused on in the last year, I've been a therapist for over 20 years, but in the last several years, I've been writing and training therapists on some different ways to treat trauma. And I had been invited to speak and I had to cut back on my private practice because I was getting that part of my career was really taking off. And then I got an invitation this year to put together a training program for the Veterans Administration. So all of these have been great, wonderful experiences. And teaching is another form of learning. So it's even helped me, I think, become better at understanding what I do. And and I think it can make me more helpful to even my clients in the future. But with all so the, the the issue when when COVID came around, the program that I'm working on with the VA was so timely because they were switching a lot of their live training programs to online. So we were developing online training programs, and I felt really excited that we were getting a lot of support because in the beginning we weren't getting a lot of support until there became such a great need. So that was really great. But then, honestly, Leo, when... When all of these deaths with Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, I used to work with kids in inner city New Orleans, and I felt like just putting everything on hold because I wanted to, I wanted to get involved in some way. And my the the thing that drove me into this field was to work with children and living in New Orleans there was such a great need with inner city kids. And when I learned working with those kids and a lot of them were in gangs, they were really good kids. They were labeled with conduct disorder and oppositional defiant disorder and antisocial disorder. And, and I was also being a white woman from Atlanta and I was, you know, 20 something at the time, naive, idealistic. <laughs> and I knew when I walked into that school for the first time that I wasn't sure I could really be of help. I thought, who am I? I, you know, what do I know about living in inner city New Orleans? And what finally broke the ice with those students is I just went in like that. I said, you may not need to be in a counseling group. And I think we need to start with you educating me. You tell me what people don't understand about you. And it took them a few weeks to even talk to me, to even answer that question. They did not trust anyone, but they started by asking me some questions. And then we, I brought in some music. We did some art together. Just, I just gave them, things to draw and they would draw things for me. That's how they would communicate with me. And then one day I challenged them. I said, if just one of you can share verbally, you know, something that's on your mind today, I will do an awkward white girl dance for you because I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I'm not embarrassing unless I'm willing to do something embarrassing. And they started laughing and they didn't think I would do it. And I said, no, you know, so I, I kept thinking of ways, how can I make my, self vulnerable too. And so we can connect as human beings. 
And I couldn't believe it, Leah, that by the end of that group, they were saying, oh, Miss Courtney, we got, we've got to teach you how to dance. Like, this is really sad. And they they started showing me things, and they did start teaching me things. And they taught me a lot of the things that I think are just coming to light now about how they said, Miss Courtney, the world doesn't work for us. Do you know most of us won't live to be past the age of 21? And one of the jobs that I had as a counselor in the school was to help them access post-secondary education. It didn't have to be college, but to help them look at vocational training of some sort. And when I attempted to do that, they said, Miss Courtney, we only have three options. We can either sell drugs, we can work at McDonald's, or we can by some miracle play for the NBA. And this is back in the 90s. And they literally believed that, Leo. They literally believed that that was their only option because they said, you don't understand, Miss Courtney, even if we go to college, the world doesn't work for us. And so that's what their experience was. So a lot of when I train counselors, I say, you know, we were taught to do cognitive behavioral therapy where you tell people, well, that's a negative thought. Let's reframe that to a more positive thought. But if you're, that doesn't work if your experience has taught you something. So these weren't just negative thoughts. They were telling me this is what their experience had been. So why should they believe anything different? So part of what we set out to do in my work with them in our group, because we were doing, it was a specific group that we were given a grant to do in this program, is I realized, you know what, my my job here is to help them have new experiences that teach them something different about themselves and their poss- the possibilities for themselves in the world. And without going too far afield, you know, and getting into all of the things that we did, you know, I didn't work on, we didn't really do traditional psychotherapy as much as I would find field trips and things that we could do to show them different. I would invite speakers in. We created like this mock shoe design business because I used to be in the shoe business before I was in the mental health business. And one of our students drew these beautiful athletic shoes. And I told him, I said, you could get a job with Nike. They need people with this kind of vision to be shoe designers. I'm not saying you could call Nike and get a job today, but if that's something that interests you, then we could figure out how to get you on a path. It may be that you only need like a year of graphic design or something like that to get you on a track to do something like that. And so, so it was opening their mind up to possibilities. Now that wasn't going to solve all the problems that we've got in the world. Right. But, but it was, it, this, the recent things that have come about, I've really pulled at my heartstrings about wanting to get involved in that work again in some way. And it helped me remember why I got into this field in the first place. And working with the Veterans Administration, we there's a lot of diverse cultures in the VA as well. So we're really putting some more emphasis on recognizing the barriers that are still there and, and how do we how do we break them down and how do we help people feel like they do actually have equal opportunities and it's going to take time. I know that, but I may have gone too far off on a tangent, but, but I, I, 
I have to say that all of this really narrowed it and, and clarified for me why I'm in this field, what I want to do with the skills that I have. And you even invited me to be on your podcast. It was another opportunity that I thought, yeah, you know, I really like what he does and I want to connect because the more we can get information out there and get people connected and have these conversations, the more we can move this forward. Courtney, I love that you just went off on a, <laughs> on a tangent and 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 showed your passion. I mean, that's why I was excited to talk to you. Now I looked at your website, I looked at your history, and I was like, oh yeah, she got passion. <laughs> she has experiences. She got stuff to talk about. Don't don't ever pull back. That's what we here for. People oh. need to hear all of this, the whole three sixty. Okay. Um, and because yeah. I, I want to unpack some of the things that you said, right? I and, know, and, I know. And, yeah. and my listeners are going to be like, unpack, like, I, I don't forget where I got, I got that word from, but, I, but I, I'm overusing it, like how people use pivot all the time. Um, yeah. But I, <laughs> I, do, I do the same thing. I say it too. Yeah. But, uh, but one of the things you mentioned was how you used music, art, and, and writing for the kids to find a way to express themselves, to share who they are to be vulnerable. And, and what's powerful about that is one, uh, you know, we see so much of the schools, uh, of the arts programs being defunded. And, and as you said, like for a lot of people that it, it you're, you were, what we're doing is eliminating a way for people to find a healthy way to express themselves. Not everybody is a, a writer or a speech debater. And mm -hmm. so through art, through music, is is where we can communicate and connect uh, with each other, and and they found the. I just had somebody on a past podcast who, in terms of helping vets deal with post traumatic uh, stress, which they they now call psychological injury, um, mm -hmm. but they working with art, working with music, work you know these different modalities. Uh, mm -hmm. is really helpful. So let's. Mm -hmm. I I just want to emphasize that to the listeners of like. There's power in in, in art in your artistic uh, outlets and, and creativity, uh, uh, so that you can yes. deal with your traumas. Oh yes, uh, we got further, Leo, using the arts than I've ever in any kind of talk therapy. Um, you know, they um, and even with my clients after this, you know, after this part of of my career working in that school. Um, yeah, I, I think I think it really you can again that emotional part of your brain doesn't speak in words. It speak it thinks like an animal or a small child. It, it's it learns through the senses and it learns through images and experiences and it expresses itself that way too. So it's very hard. It's like extra work to have to translate that into <laughs> words, especially complete sentences. So. Uh, you know, you can really tap in so much deeper through those modalities and they're a natural way for us to find healing and connection to one another. You, you know, what, what I love that you mentioned, that I didn't even realize the connection. You said uh, it, it helps us when we're emotional, right? And, mm -hmm. and I think that a lot of people 
uh, turn to food when they're emotional or they turn to drugs or they mm. turn to some type of maladaptive behavior when we're in our limbic system, when we're in our emotional brain, whether it's loneliness yeah. or boredom or anxious or, or angry, when, when really if we tap in, if we do things to, and we're kind of doing this on a subconscious level, tapping into our senses with the drugs and food, but, but music also taps into those senses and, and, and art and drawing and cooking and gardening yeah. and, and building something and sharing something. There's so many different ways to tap into that. You are so right. And just like you mentioned with the veterans, yeah, the VA is bringing in so many new modalities now because you know, they can't deny it. It's, it's such a, it's, it can be so much more engaging and healing and make more sense to people. You know, a lot of times men are task oriented. So the way that they heal, and we also know this from grief, like men like to get busy and do something. So a lot of times you'll see when a man's grieving, he'll want to go out and like start building something or he'll create a garden, you know, um, where females may prefer to talk. So, but, but again, I don't want to refine it to any one gender, you know, when we all have different ways that we heal and express ourselves. And I think your point is so well taken that we, we don't need to stop funding these things. We're cutting off a very natural way that human beings heal, express themselves, process information. You know, I mean, we learn better through experiential ways than we do from reading or hearing a lecture. Is there a way, can you give us like one example of a way you've used art or music or any of the other modalities to help somebody work with their, their traumas? Because I can, mm -hmm. I can see a listener now being like, oh, so what, should I just listen to music and I'll be fine? Like, can we get a specific, mm. yeah. uh, like make a playlist or like. Yeah. yeah, that's one of my favorite things to do is invite someone to make a playlist, but there's a way to make playlists, a therapeutic playlist. So what you want to do is, you know, you want to probably have five or six songs minimal. Now I've had people have like 20 and more, but um, the first two, let's say we're going to pick six songs. You want to pick the first song or two to be a song that echoes the pain that you're feeling. Because what we found, and neuroscience has found this, that when we listen to a song, even if it's sad, it the reason why it touches us so much is because it feels like somebody gets us. Someone's able to, or uh, through music, whether there's vocals in it or not, it's like, oh my gosh, that's exactly capturing the way I feel right now. And even though it's sad, it is also extremely comforting. So what we have found is that when we listen to songs like that, we release oxytocin in the brain, which is a bonding neurohormone. It's also a neurohormone that reduces anxiety. So you need to feel like there's there's some kind of a song that can echo what you've been feeling, whether that's sadness, anger, whatever it is. And so an example of that would be a, a client of mine whose son died of an overdose. And he picked a song from Les Miserables. And now I'm going to 
can't remember the name. Life has killed the dream I dreamed. Um, I know those are the lyrics to it, but I mean, it it is gut wrenching. But he said this song captures the dejection that I felt. I mean, it's perfect. And then he his other one was um, by Evanescence, My Immortal. And even though those are both really heavy songs, they were cathartic for him. But if you made a whole playlist of those kinds of songs, you could send yourself into a darker emotional place by the end of it. So so you want to have a song or two that kind of helps to reflect that experience. But then the next two songs on your list should be moving towards how you want to be feeling. So the where we want to go is here's where it's like we're creating a story. Like here's where I'm at now. And then you want to, you want to pick some songs that maybe reflect how you want to be feeling or the middle, like, you know, how you'd like to be getting through this journey. And then the last two songs should be songs or I don't want to say should, but I recommend there be songs that, that ultimately represent where you want to be, you know, six months from now, a year from now, three years from now. So again, using this client I was telling you about for the middle two songs of his playlist, he actually picked, he was dealing with a lot of guilt as a lot of parents do when a child suicides or overdoses. And so he picked a couple of songs like he picked um, Father and Son by Cat Stevens because it brought up happy memories about him and his son. And he, it was a song, like he said, even though I still feel guilt and think I should have done more to maybe prevent this overdose, I, you know, I'm remembering times that I really feel like we had a good relationship and I really did show up for him. And there was another song um, by Imagine Dragons that his son liked. And but those were songs that were kind of affirming. I was a, a good dad and he was a good son and we had a good relationship. We just drug abuse got in the way. And this is, you know, what happens. It was an illness. And then his last two songs, there was a Indigo Girls, We're Better Off for All That We Let In. So I think it's called All That We Let In. And it's, it is a song about grief, but it says even though these horrible tragedies happen in our lives, we're still better for having love. We're still better for having let these things in. And then another song was Stevie Wonder's Stay Gold. And he liked the line, when breath away and there you'll be so young and carefree. And what he, he said, I want to, he was Christian. And so he said he believed in an afterlife. He believed that his son was in heaven. He believed that God understands suicide and drug abuse is caused by deep pain uh, and that God has mercy on those who, you know, who are trying to end the pain in their life And so he envisioned his son in the afterlife, like being like, he said, I want to look at the son and feel like my, my son is part of that light is now with God in that light. And so everyone's going to have different songs and spiritual things that make sense to them, of course. But it was amazing, Leo, because we had been doing a lot of, of talking in our therapy sessions And he was really stuck. And when I invited him to make a playlist, he said, 
you know, he said, I had really not even been able to cry sometimes. Like I just felt so numb, but he said the music really helped him begin to feel again. And even though he would just sob deeply sometimes listening to it, he really began to move forward in his life. And he said that, that all of the songs still had meaning, but the, the songs on the latter part of the playlist became like what he would listen to whenever he began to lose hope. And, and it really helped him continue to, you know, to believe that he could heal and that he could find joy and peace in his life again, in spite of this horrible loss. And so I just am amazed at how healing music has been in this way for some of my clients and in all of us, all of us have playlists out there, whether we think we're putting together a therapeutic playlist or not. I bet everybody listening to this show has used music to get through some hard times. Courtney Armstrong, you just helped me uh, figure out how to put together a workout playlist also. Oh yeah, that's true. I'm like, because, you know, I have I have certain playlists that I listen to. I have like a yoga playlist and uh, I have my typical uh, morning playlist. And I, I find myself going back and forth. And, I, and, and sometimes I'm like, oh, I, I, I'm feeling more of this and not that and blah, blah. But you help me make it make it all make sense now of like, all right, mm-hmm. play a couple songs of what am I feeling right now? And then what do I want to feel? And then, you know, six to eight months from now, like that's such a powerful way to, to strategize a lot of things. I could even see maybe watching movies like that. Like, you yeah. know, maybe you watch a t- uh, movie that kind of helps you, you know, if you're sad, you watch like, I don't know, Sleepless in Seattle. That's not really a, the saddest, but uh, yeah. or like a star is born. And then the next thing that you watch is something of like, what you want to feel and and then that's a wow you you really we're done this episode's over (laughs) ladies and gentlemen everybody go home make a playlist (laughs) that was really powerful i love yeah thank you i love the movie idea that is fabulous and you know i think that that is so helpful right now because I know I've experienced that, you know, when I've been watch something and then I'm feeling like really like, because it it was maybe something I really wanted to watch that was, you know, important for me to watch. But, but then, you know, to follow it with a movie or a show that's going to take me to the next place in this journey. So you don't just feel stuck at the yuck. I love it. I want to backtrack a little bit. I, first of all, I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, but when you talked about how sometimes cognitive behavioral therapy doesn't work because of the because uh, we're really talking about the experiences that people have had. And uh, I want to dig a little bit more into that idea because uh, cognitive therapy, behavioral therapy is one of those things that uh, is very helpful for people who are struggling with suicidal ideations. Uh-huh. And uh, and so is when is kind of behavioral therapy good for that? And then when do we pivot and, and how do we show yeah. them different experiences? So thank you. That, that is an excellent question. And I, I agree with you. I think we need both. So 
there's no doubt that cognitive behavioral therapy has helped so many people with depression and anxiety and, as you said, suicidal ideation. And what I have found is that it works best when we're at a mild to moderate level of emotional intensity. So when you're in a mild level of sadness or anger, it's easier to use your thoughts to regulate your emotions. You can say, you know, I know I'm feeling this way. I know I'm feeling kind of um, discouraged or angry today, but I know why I'm feeling this way. And it doesn't mean the rest of my life is going to be this way. Um, But when someone's really stuck and you, you recognize, like if if you're working, with a friend or something or a loved one and, and you're trying to lift them up. And I mean, they're just like, they're, I, I know what you're saying, but I don't feel it. I can't feel that. That's when, you know, you got to go to what the emotional brain understands. So for example, you know, unfortunately one of my extended family members died of suicide last year and he was bipolar and he was in one of his depressive cycles And he was really down on himself. He said that he felt like he was a burden to the family, that he didn't know if he could live, you know, in this cyclical life anymore. Just and no matter how hard they the family was trying to talk to him and say, are you kidding me? You know, we love you and we understand what's going on. This is the illness talking. He could not take it in. He just couldn't believe it. And so what did help for a while um, is he was extremely creative and he also liked the outdoors. So getting him outside, getting him connected to the earth, letting him do creative videos where he was, you know, giving people lessons and some of the things that he thought people should understand about nature. But when he, you know, it's almost like he couldn't reason with himself in that moment. So he had to just do something physical and experiential and creative. And, and that is what kept him going for years. Um, you know, he, he hit a really tough place, you know, when he finally, you know, completed a suicide attempt. But, but I would say if he had been able to let these are extended family members. So I did not know at the time that this happened. I didn't know this was going on until after it happened. But, but, you know, um, they said he wouldn't, he wouldn't allow anyone in right before it happened. But prior to that, um, that was the way they could pull him out of the abyss. Wow. Wow. Uh, thank you first for sharing that with me because I, I think for the listeners out there, it, it saves, I mean, just that could save so many lives because, you know, what we know the danger of isolation and, yes. and, and, and being, you know, uh, uh, removing yourself from family and friends. And uh, even if you, you feel like a burden, uh, like she said, like the people around you are, are telling you otherwise. So to, yeah. to listen to that and, uh, and you know, it's, uh, yeah. but, but I, I love that idea of you're right. It's like when they're extremely emotional, I had to, I had a friend call me, uh, one time and because he wanted to end his life 
and he he was he was so emotional and crying and and uh but we were outside thankfully and, mm-hmm. and kind of walking around and I, and you know now listening to you I realized I was probably being too logical and and uh but being outside so he could move around and kind of yeah. express himself a bit more helped him to yeah. calm down and, and relax for sure. I think you did. So even though you were, your words were appealing to his logical brain, you were outside and you were walking and, and movement helps too. It's it, even if you're not doing, you know, creative movement, movement definitely helps process those emotions too, Leo. So I think what you did was perfect. It was, you know, just him, even if he couldn't process everything you were saying verbally, just you being present, walking beside him, that's what the emotional brain feels. That's what it understands. And that's, that makes people feel better, even if they're not consciously aware of it. It's just you being present with someone, sharing a moment, even if you're not talking, it goes such a long way. All right, I want to switch gears for just a little bit uh, because I definitely want to get into your book, Rethinking Trauma Treatment, Attachment Memory, Reconsolidation, and Resilience. But before we get into that, because I I, I, I want to really dive into that, uh, what was this thing you did with shoes before? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I... Well, I worked at uh, in Atlanta. There was a place called Shoemaker's Warehouse. And so I was, I started out just as a clerk there and I worked my way up into the manager and assistant buyer position. And so I loved it. I mean, I love shoes, obviously. And, and we had such a good time working there. The Indigo Girls shop there, all the Atlanta, ha- uh, Atlanta Hawks players, basketball players shop there. Um, we had such a great clientele. It was in the heart of the city. I think it's still there. It just got bought out by new owners. But uh, so, th- so I was a buyer, but I learned so much about that industry. We would go to New York, you know, at least four times a year on buying trips. So I did learn a lot about how shoes were made and designed. And But uh, I, I, I decided to go back to be in mental health because even though I loved that job for a long time, one day me and one of my coworkers we're kind of burned out on shoes. We, <laughs> we, we were at a shoe show and he looked at me and he goes, you know what, Courtney, it's just shoes. And then we both understood what he meant. Like, this is really fun, but it's not fulfilling us on some other level. I love that. Uh, thank you for sharing that with us. I, I was like, what does she do? Does she design like the Jordans or something? <laughs> no. No, but I love, I mean, anyone in that industry, hey, more power to you. I love it. I wish I was that talented to be able to design shoes. I love it. Uh, So I definitely, I want to get into your book, uh, Rethinking Trauma Treatment, Attachment, Memory Reconsolidation, and Resilience. Uh, And in that book, you talk about the six steps for transforming grief. Can can you uh, elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, so we've we've actually talked about a lot of them. So I'm just going to kind of put the acronym out there uh, to kind of organize what we've been talking about. But but one of the first things I tell people when they're doing going through grief, especially traumatic grief, is 
this acronym I use is called EMERGE, E-M-E-R-G-E. So the first E is engage mindfulness. Initially, when you've experienced grief and loss, you're in shock. It's overwhelming. Going through the grocery store feels like a chore. I mean, I mean, it feels like a chore to me any time of the year, but I mean, you know, you just, it's like too much. I can't even, you know, handle all this. It's too much stimulation. And so I will tell people right now, the best thing you can do is just put one foot in front of the other, get a routine. Like what really helps us is ritual and routine when things are chaotic. So even if, you know, your routine can change, but like get up at the same time every day, try to do something to get yourself present, especially when you start feeling overwhelmed and, you know, just have something that you do that's consistent every day. And stay mindful about this is just the present moment. And I can't predict where this is going to go. Like, And that goes back to some cognitive behavioral stuff about not projecting too far into the future and just staying in the present. And that's where your power is in this moment. The second thing. Uh, uh-huh. Can I unpack? I want to unpack yeah. the ritual uh, versus yeah. routine. Uh, two things. Yeah. One is. Um, I realized for myself that just recently, actually, that I need to have multiple routines, like uh, a routine for when I'm home and then a routine for when I travel, a routine yeah. for when I'm with friends, things like that. So the routine is fluid where I, I used to try to have the same routine for all situations and all things. And then yeah. I'm realizing that I can't have that. Um, mm-hmm. But the second thing I, I, I like for you to elaborate on What's the difference between a routine and a ritual? You, you mentioned both. Yeah. So that is a great question. Ritual is is kind of something that has some spiritual or emotional meaning for you. So it doesn't mean you got to like, you know, get up and, you know, say prayers and, you know, but it, it just means that there's something that you might do that just... Um, affirms your intention for the day. Uh, And that, to me, I think that's a lot more helpful to say the word intention instead of goal. So for me, and it's a small thing to me, I open all the blinds. I let the light in my house. So every morning it's like, let the light in. And it, it, it seems like a small thing, but it's really important to me to, to affirm you know, it's daylight, the light's coming in and to set my intention for what I want to focus on that day. Um, and ritual can also be, it's, it's something that you, so if you are dealing with loss of a person, you know, you may have something that you do, you know, on a daily or weekly or monthly basis to acknowledge that person and what that relationship meant in your life. So I have had clients that, you know, in the evening, they might light a candle for that person and say a prayer for them or talk to them or play their loved one's favorite song or even eat their loved one's favorite food, you know, some way that you're affirming that their life meant something. Whereas routine is just kind of something predictable about, you know, I'm going to, I think of it just in your schedule, you know, that I'm going to, you know, my intention is to get up at 7am. I'll, you know, take a walk or take a shower, whatever it 
you know, feels right to you. Make sure I eat something. It's just to keep you healthy and just kind of doing something predictable that maintains your your health and some order to your life. Whereas a ritual is going to have more of a, it's an intentional thing that you do that creates meaning. I, I That completely makes sense. I appreciate you clearing that up for myself and, and the listeners. Uh, I do want to backtrack before we continue on with the Emerge uh, yeah. because I just realized like when you talked about men and women grieving differently, I think that that's uh, such a powerful thing to kind of unpack a little bit because yeah. I recognize that, especially like if, if it's parents who have lost someone, especially to suicide, uh, that that could, that could create a rift and, and tear them apart. Mm. And I think part of it is, is because we do grieve differently. So it looks like the other person isn't grieving or didn't care because right. they're expressing it differently. Can you speak to that? Yes. In fact, the client that I was telling you about with the playlist, that was what was going on in his relationship with his wife, that he he was withdrawing. He needed more alone time. Like He didn't feel like he could talk about it, and he was also feeling numb, and he felt confused and guilty about that, whereas she just wanted to talk and sob and get it all out and scream and yell, and he couldn't handle the intensity. So it was creating a real big rift in their relationship. And she, her perception of him is that he's cold and uncaring and he's, he's abandoning me. I feel like I'm losing him too. And um, yeah, so it was really hard, you know, for them to recognize. And, and so I, I think what we have to do of course, we had to get them on the same page somehow. And the, where they could connect was music. And so he made his playlist and she made hers. And they listened to their respective playlists individually and then together. And that was what helped get them back on the same page. And that showed her the depth of what he was feeling that he couldn't express. He could, he could communicate through the music. But a larger piece of that, Leo, is I think when you're, when someone that close to you is not grieving in the same way or at the same pace you are, it's really challenging. And we do have to figure out which friends are good for when I just need to cry or talk and which relationships or friends are good when I need a distraction from it. Uh, you know, it's almost like you really it can be easy to just feel like a certain friend has let you down, but sometimes it's just that that friend is better for some things and not others. Um, and for women, you know, and I mean, some men too, certainly we're socialized to process things through talking and through relationships. So we're more comfortable with that. And we have to realize that, you know, men and and even some of our female friends may do better through task-oriented projects. That's how they're creating order. And it may not look like they're dealing with their grief, but they are. They, it's it's when you're task-oriented, it's a way of feeling like you've you've got some control again in your life, and that you're creating something out of some 
out of chaos. You're, you're great. Like this man I worked with, who built birdhouses. That was the way he was dealing with grief. But it was like, when we began to look at it metaphorically, like he was taking old damaged wood, um, stuff that had been destroyed and creating something new and beautiful with it to feed new life. Courtney Armstrong, what I love about what you said is and I also realize I say what I love about a lot. Um is <laughs> I do too. <laughs> I, I realized that the other day. <laughs> said, you just love everything, don't you? <laughs> uh but but what what I love about what you said is and and it's highlighted something t- that I just realized yesterday about myself is that I'm very time oriented. Like I like mm-hmm. to do things by a certain time. I've been always thinking about things in terms of how much time does it take? Can I do this in a certain amount of time versus not so much task oriented. And, <laughs> and I realized that because I have friends who start their day with the most important thing, like the, the most important task. What's the biggest thing that they have to knock out? Whereas like I'm thinking about time, I'm like I can do this in this amount of time, that amount of time. And, and so I do things by how much time it would take. And uh, and then, but some people are people oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, also, mm-hmm. does I, so you talked about task oriented, and then you talked about uh, people oriented. Uh, somebody who's time oriented. I, I, I'm putting you on a spot here with this question. Yeah. How would that show up? How would they grieve differently? I, I guess can can we go back through all three? Like, how does a task yeah. oriented versus people versus time? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I think when, well, my cousin who whose son died from suicide last year, she is she may be more of a time oriented person, and she told me that she actually wanted to go back to work just after a week um, after his, he passed, and everyone at work was saying what, are you crazy? Like it's too soon. And she said, no, because this gives me a sense of order in my life. But what, so it it might look somewhat task oriented with her too, but, but there's a time for her to focus on living and there's a time for her to focus on grieving. So what she, what she realized and she she called me because she said, am I doing this right? I don't know if I'm grieving right, which <laughs> there's no way to grieve or grieve wrong, by the way. But people worry, like, am I doing this in a healthy way? But she said from eight to five, she was all on, all focused on work, like was functional, doing just fine. But in the evenings, she would just like hadn't fall apart or on Saturdays, she'd just like stay in her pajamas all day and hole up in her bed. And, you know, and I said, but for her, Leah, like, I think she may be more time oriented. Like there's a, there's a time and a place for certain things and that, and for her to compartmentalize it like that helped her quite a bit, even though she worried that it was unhealthy. i I really think it was the way that she had to break this thing up to manage it because it's just so overwhelming when we have any kind of loss, you know. But um, so it may look like that, like you, you know, a time-oriented person may 
may separate out when I'm going to focus on the loss, when I'm going to focus on other things. Yeah. Well, my dad passed away. Uh, I didn't cry immediately. And I remember saying, uh, you know what? I'll, I'll grieve uh, Saturday, Sunday from 8 a.m. <laughs> to like 4 p.m. And then I should I should be good after that. Like, like I was like I put it in a calendar uh-huh. <laughs> and scratched it out. Wow. It's, it's crazy. At 44, I'm still learning about myself. Um, and so somebody who's people oriented, well, I guess when would want to talk about it more, I'm, I'm assuming, yeah. or be around oh, yeah. people and. Yeah. Yeah. And so pe- people oriented processors would, you know, they're, they will need some alone time too. So if you're one of those people then know that it's okay for you to have some solitude also. But I think that they, they have to be particular about knowing who to be around for certain needs. So, you know, you are going to have friends who are really good at listening and just being present with you. And those are the friends you call when you need support, emotional support. And then there's going to be friends who are better to get your mind off things or to help you move forward or to help you organize things. So one of my very best friends, and we had been friends since we were 14 years old. And then when I went through a series of losses, I got my feelings hurt because she really wasn't comfortable when I just needed to sob. Uh, but she's great for, she's got a great sense of humor. She was a I realized, oh, you know what? I'm holding this over her head and she's just not really well equipped for supporting me on those days when I just really am very sad. But she is fantastic when, hey, I can help you organize these things, pack up their clothes. Uh, I could she could help me laugh. And so I just had to figure out which friends were good for which moments. (laughs) Yeah, my girlfriend is task oriented and I'm okay. time oriented. Ah. Uh, and so I it's make is is shedding some light as to why there there've been some discourse between yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's true. All right, so I cut off your whole you, you were on E. <laughs> we oh, have five I, more. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my gosh. I don't want to keep you here all day. No, no, no. I, I'm loving this. I have the time if you have the time. I, oh, I, this is yeah. this is the time is, uh, as, as much as I am time-oriented, uh, I, I am gaining, and I feel like the listeners are, are gaining a lot of value from all this. So uh, please well, take I your am, time to, to share. Well, I am, too. I just, that's why I'm so happy to be invited because you ask the best questions and you provoke the best discussions and thoughts. So I'm having a great time <laughs> as well in learning from you. Uh, the, if we get back to the emerge, um, the M in emerge is what I call making living stories. So when we're talking about the grief associated with the loss of a person, especially if it's a tragic death. So, George Floyd or suicide or Breonna Taylor, all of these recent deaths, especially now there, we, we tend to focus on how that person died. So for the rest of us who see this as a call 
to action to say enough's enough about police brutality, you know, in that way, these, these young people's deaths can be heralding in, you know, a new mission, but for their families and this, I just can't imagine for their immediate families, for them, it, they don't want George to be remembered just by how he died. And what I have seen with so many going through traumatic loss is you want to make living stories. You want to remember them for they were so much more than their death. And even if it was a difficult relationship or even if they made a lot of mistakes in their lives, you know, like, you know, some of our loved ones who have had mental illness, like bipolar disorder, you know, it, we want to stay focused on what we got out of that relationship, you know, so maybe you even had someone that it was a very difficult relationship and they passed in a tragic way and a part of you may feel relieved that the chaos has ended and feel guilty about that. But at the same time, I think you can look at that relationship and think, what did being in relationship with that person teach me about myself or the world or life? Um, you know, and one of the ladies I talk about in my book, her son was shot, unfortunately, um, in Chicago. He was, he was shot in a crossfire situation. And one of the things that she did going back to art is she contacted one of my friends who creates these photoscapes of of your desired memory of a loved one. So she calls them her healing dreamscapes. And that artist, um, his name is Nancy Gershman. I'm not going to tell you the client's name for confidentiality, but, but she said she couldn't get the image of her son being shot out of her mind. And so we started looking at how do you want to remember him? And she said, Oh, I remember when he used to grill hot dogs out, even when it was freezing cold in Chicago, he would go out on our apartment balcony and grill hot dogs. Um, oh, I remember he loved to build things, and here's something that he built. Um, I, re- you know, so we started pulling out all of the things that she loved about him and putting together a new story about his life. And then Nancy helped her put the pictures to that story. And it was the coolest thing. She said, just looking at that new, it was like a photo collage, but Nancy put them together in a way that it just represented the best of him. And then she was able to make a screensaver and some other memorabilia with this photo collage that really encapsulated what her son's life meant to her. And she said, once she did that, the nightmare stopped she didn't keep replaying those awful pictures in her mind. Only these pictures, they replaced those ugly ones. You know, what I love about that, I'm going to keep saying what I love, uh, <laughs> is, is is bringing up to mind the idea of a lot of times we get on track with things in terms of uh, a workout or something, and then we fall off the wagon and uh, our brain, our hippocampus, uh, only remembers the the bad stuff and the negative stuff when we go down the spiral of uh, yeah. I can never stay on track. I can never blah blah blah. We, we go into this all or nothing thinking. But right. I wanna. But I realize we could apply the same concept of making living memories 
for ourselves while we're still alive in terms of instead of photos of ourselves, like, uh, you know, this is me when I was 15, I was so skinny and now I'm 40 and I'm so big. It's like to, to capture video of ourselves in the process of, of working out so that we're reminded of the work and effort we have to put in instead of a lot of photos that people capture are of the results and we forget the process mm. and, and the work. And so if, if we can, I mean, if you hire a videographer or just hire a friend to, to one of the things is one of the things that motivates me is when I go hiking, I'll take video of myself uh, hiking and yeah. it, it releases the same endorphins as if I worked out and then it encourages me to want to go, if not hiking, but just go do something. So I, right. I think capturing the we have to capture ourselves in the process to so that we continue to to affirm those actions. You are so right. I think that is a wonderful idea <laughs> because that's what your mind. Because a lot of people will fall off the wagon because they're so attached to the results. But when you know I practice visualization or teach clients how to use visualization to motivate themselves. I say, you have to visualize what you would need to do to get to your goal. So you can't just visualize, Oh, I've lost 20 pounds. You know, you have to visualize I'm getting up in the morning. I'm taking my walk. I'm enjoying it. Absolutely. And that's another way to do it. And that's a challenge for a lot of people. I naturally am a, a, a visual, uh, uh, thinker, but for, for people who have a hard time with that, I could definitely see uh, th- that adding uh, some value. I to think it. so too. I think that would really, I think that would really work and help remind you and and help you stick with it. So what's this? What's the next E stand oh, for? We got the E. Okay. We got the M. Um, envision connection. So what we have found in grief research is that the people who who recover the best from traumatic loss do what we call establish continuing bonds with the deceased. And I call it connection because you just want to you want to have some ongoing connection with that person. So it's similar to making living stories in that you want to feel like even though they're not physically here anymore, they their memories of them don't die, or you may even believe that you still have that, you know, spiritual connection with them in some way. But what we found is that people who talk to their dead loved ones, um, who who still like celebrate their dead loved ones, um, who uh you know, carry them forward in their hearts. They tell stories about them. They, even if it was a tragic loss, the people who aren't afraid to keep talking about them and keep their legacy alive, those are the people who actually heal the best. And so uh, it's different from what we used to think because years ago we were taught, you know, you need to accept that they're gone and move on. And now what we're finding is actually, science is showing us and part of that has to do with attachment your emotional brain uh you know we subconsciously we form these attachments as well as consciously and so again your emotional brain even though you can logically accept someone's laws your emotional brain thinks like an animal or a small child and it's so like 
where is he? Get him back. And so when you let yourself imagine talking to that person or literally talk to that person or keep their legacy alive, it helps our emotional brain feel like they're still with us. We're still getting something from that relationship. I love it. It it, it is true because in, in Gestalt therapy, they have a thing called the, and I know you know this, the empty chair technique. And yeah, uh, it's such a powerful way to reconnect. Can you talk to the people about what the empty chair technique is? And then if you have yeah. a, another way that people yeah. can talk to. Yeah, this is what I do all the time. And what I found, Leo, it depends on the person. So empty chair is where you imagine the person that you want to have a conversation with in a chair in front of you and then speak to them. And it could be something that you do with a deceased loved one. You know, you imagine the conversation that you'd like to have in a way to get some closure or, or resolve some, you know, unresolved things before they pass. But it could also be you do this with someone who's alive, but you feel it's it's not worked out where you could really have a comfortable conversation with them. But you say what you'd like to say and imagine what they might say back to you and work through it that way. And you could do it with a literal empty chair if that works for you. When I work with clients, a lot of times for them, it's just imagining that person in their mind and imagining that they could speak to them. And I even do sometimes a guided imagery if people like that, where I have them imagine a beautiful place or a place that they shared with that person, a place that feels, you know, safe and comfortable. And imagine what I will tell people if they're going, going to do this with someone who's passed away. I'll say, let's do an imaginal conversation and imagine them speaking to you from an enlightened place of awareness. So let's imagine what they might say to you if they were in a place where they could see things from a different perspective now, a place where they can have more capacity for compassion and empathy Um I think that can be important because if you sometimes if it's a difficult relationship, it you and you imagine what the conversation as it was with that person when they were in their body, you know, it may not be a pleasant experience. But I think we want to if you when I invite people to imagine what they would say to you from a place of enlightened perspective and what they would want you to know or feel now, it's almost always a really beautiful healing conversation for them. And, you know, I've had this happen with a client whose mother was schizophrenic and tried to actually kill my client one time. And she was having nightmares of her mom chasing her with knives. And when we did this exercise where she imagined having a conversation with, I said, imagine your mom out of that malfunctioning brain and body and what she might say to you being free of that now. And she said, oh, my gosh, I just had more memories of my mom when she was stable, like when she wasn't, you know, when she was either taking medication or in a more stable place in her life. But she said, I, I, I've forgotten about these times when I was younger that she was really sweet. And, and those are the times when she was really in a better place mentally. And so it was really beautiful experience for her. Now, I've also had people who said, you know, I just can't imagine having a conversation with my loved one 
coming from a place of enlightened perspective, but they got some other message when they were just letting them, their minds wander or just pretending to have a conversation. So I think that that can be really helpful. Even if you don't believe you can have a conversation with them, just pretend like just act as if and see what happens. <laughs> you know, I, it's so funny cause I, I played high school, college football and visualization uh, and, and, you know, talking out all these things you learn in sports uh, yeah. to improve your performance. And it, it's funny because as adults, it's kind of beaten out of us a little bit of like, it's kind of looked at, are you daydreaming? It's like, stay focused. And, and I, so I think as adults, we kind of look at, at it as something that only children do, but it's, it's really uh, beneficial for us at any age. Exactly. I, I laugh because it's so true. I, I see sports apply more psychology concepts than any other profession, you know. A- absolutely. And and so, like, when we get into the, where are we at? We on R? What, what is the oh, R yeah. stand okay. for? Okay, so R. So I usually invite people to have, like, an imaginal conversation with their deceased loved one before we get to R, because R is reprocessed traumatic memories. And I, I like to have people make living stories, imagine talking to that person before you go back and try to look at one of the harder memories, because if you can first allow yourself to experience something more positive with that person, it's going to be easier to look at the more painful memories. And we now know from science, and this is part of what I talk about in my book, memory reconsolidation is a new concept. Well, it's not totally new. It was discovered in the year 2000, but what we've learned is that your mind will update a traumatic memory or a painful memory if you hold a positive or desired version of that memory side by side with the old memory. So so to give you a quick example, this client I was just talking about, whose mom was schizophrenic, her mother committed suicide and her mother left a note and the note blamed my client and a couple of other people. And it was awful. And so my client kept having nightmares about her mom, chasing her with knives, leaving her nasty notes, feeling guilt about her mom, you know, the way that she died and all of this. So when we did some of that imaginal conversation first, and she could imagine her mom like, in her healthier moments, when we went back to look at some of the painful memories, like when her mom tried to kill her, it was easier for her to put that memory in perspective. So what you would do is you recall the memory, but you change the ending. The story doesn't. So what she did is she kept remembering a time when her mother attempted to stab her Um, And it never, your mind will stop the movie in the worst place. Like it just would stop at this horrible moment. And what we did is we updated that memory with, you know, and then after that, that stopped, mom eventually stopped. And, and then there were these other moments where mom was actually, lovely to be around actually. And I could see who she really was beneath this mental illness. And then there was another moment when mom passed and that was a really sad one too. But now I am 
glad that she's out of that malfunctioning brain and body. So what we did is intersperse some of these other memories into the really bad ones. And we would have her like kind of run that film through her head to like update the movie, like we're splicing new film clips into it. And it's amazing, Leah, this process I have used this to heal so many people who have these really awful things happen. And even if you think you can't find positive memories to weave in there, we will find some, even if it's just about how you survived or you overcame something in spite of this awful stuff. And it really will change it. Like she said, like, I can't remember the bad memories without a good one right beside it now. Like, It doesn't make the bad memories not bad, but it helps to put them in perspective. And what science has shown us is that we can actually, we actually see evidence that it's actually firing in the brain differently. Like it really updates it at the neural, the neuron level of the brain when you do this process. Yeah, because the brain can't tell the difference between something that actually happened and imagine. That's why movies and TV and all those things like affect us because we imagine ourselves in those roles. Exactly. Exactly. And so, yeah, so, so, so that's what, one of the things I talk about in the book are different ways you can reprocess some of those traumatic memories using memory reconsolidation. And I've given you one example of how to do it, but you know, other therapies like EMDR, even some forms of cognitive behavioral therapy can do it too. It just depends on the person and what their preferences are for how to, but, but the, it all boils down to holding, you know, a better memory side by side against the painful one so that that gets merged in there too. And the next a step in emerges similar in that we want to generate new meanings. So this goes back to cognitive therapy and the, the theory with cognitive therapy is that it's, it's the me, it's not the events that cause depression or grief or anxiety. It's the meaning we attach to the event. And, and I do still believe that uh, to be true And so, but when something awful happens, it doesn't feel like a thought or a belief. It feels like your reality and it's very hard to put a positive spin on things. So what I like to help people do is, is look at the meanings their minds attaching to something. And the way I I usually say is, is simply what does it, or what does it, or did it feel like this event meant about you? What did it feel like it meant about the person involved or other people? And what did it mean about your world or your life or your future? And if you just boil it down to those three questions, your mind will pop out the answer to those questions pretty quick. Like I'll tell people, just say the first thing that comes to mind, even if it doesn't make logical sense, you know, and sometimes it's, I'm a bad parent or I'm a bad spouse or uh, I'm a bad friend. You know, those, those meanings are what our emotional brain attached to the event. So when you, when you figure out, okay, what meaning am I attaching to this and what do I want to believe instead? And so I don't tell people we got to find a positive memory or meaning because sometimes it's hard to find a positive, but let's look for what would be a useful meaning or a helpful meaning, because this is not useful. And 
you know, that it's going to look different for everybody. So in, when I'm working with a client, we, we collaborate and do that together. So, you know, even with, you know, this COVID-19, somebody might be saying, I've lost my job of, you know, maybe they've had family member or two who passed from it and they're feeling like life's never going to be the same we're never going to get back to normal, you know, all of those meanings we can attach, or I should have done something differently. And you want to be able to step back and say, what would I like to believe instead? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, and just let your imagination run wild at first, even if it seems like a fantasy, because that's going to help you begin to access your strength. It's true because we could tell ourselves uh, a disempowering story or very empowering story, one that allows us to move forward. And and, and also it's a way to remind ourselves that even though someone may have done something uh, that had hurt us, that was painful, uh, that may not have been their intent. And uh, and, and, and maybe they just did the best that they could. Uh, Because I find that a lot of people who have are still upset with their parents or uh maybe uh in a, in a breakup and they they don't know quite yeah why they stopped calling it's like you you in, instead of looking for closures like create the closure create the meaning yes so that you can go forward thank i love that see i'm gonna say i love to i love create the closure yes you know, and take your power back. <laughs> and, and, and I, and I think you're right. You know, I, um, one of the ways you might attach a new meaning is I don't understand why this person did this thing, but obviously they didn't have the, the skills or capacity or maturity, emotional maturity to do it any differently. It's unfortunate, but you don't have to let that hold you back, you know? And the last thing that I encourage people to do is establish community. And and what I mean by that is when when you've gone through loss, transition, change, any of that, you're going to, some of your community is not going to grow with you, unfortunately. And, you know, it may not be something you can do right in the beginning when you're in the middle of the loss just happened and you're overwhelmed and you're just trying to get your routine day to day. But what we also know is the people who heal and recover in the most healthy way are people who recognize the need to establish some kind of community, whether that be, uh, you know, a support community or a community that expresses new values or supports your new values, your community may look really different within the, a year or two after surviving a loss. So, for example, one of the losses that I dealt with in my life was infertility. And I tried some infertility support groups, and they just made me feel worse. I felt more depressed and sad and discouraged. And actually, the community that helped me heal was a community of middle-aged road bikers. <laughs> I I decided my husband was, you know, really getting into cycling and he had signed up for this ride for a charity and they were going to ride like 150 miles. And, you know, when we kind of hit the road with our 
at the end of the road with our infertility, like we had exhausted all of our options. I said, you know, I think I'm going to get a bike. And I didn't think I would, but I, I got, you know, excited enough about throwing myself into it. I signed up for the race with my husband and rode with him. And a lot of the people on his team were these middle-aged men who were celebrating their kids having just left the nest and they didn't know that that my husband and I were dealing with infertility but what I loved is just being around those guys and it got my mind completely off the infertility and actually to hear some of their stories talking about the relief of not having some of those responsibilities anymore helped me heal and so you know, your community could have nothing to do with your specific loss, but maybe it's something that's bringing some new energy or, you know, reflecting some new values or interest in your life. And I just think that that is underrated a lot too. And we're too quick to say, oh, maybe you should go to a support group for that particular issue, but maybe your support group looks totally different. I love that. It really is about finding your tribe, surrounding yourself with with other uh, like-minded or just getting out your zone. You know, I had a friend who I forget what transition they were going through, but they decided they're going to go to a different church every Sunday uh, yeah. just, to, just to mix it up, just to get out their routine. As important as a routine is, it's also right. good to, to step out of it and expose yourself to something different to to, to uh, expand your awareness and uh, your perspective. Exactly. Do you, are you still riding bikes? Are you still? <laughs> yes. Now I'm not as active as I used to be. Uh, I started traveling a lot and, and that got me out of it. My husband still rides pretty avidly, but, but now I'm more of a leisurely rider. <laughs> Courtney Armstrong, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you feel like we need to share? Any nuggets, insights uh, that you've Gosh. learned? I I think we have covered so many wonderful things today, Leo, and I just appreciate you so much and what you're doing. And I've I've really enjoyed you pulling out all the ways that these things we've talked about, whether it be using music and art, uh, you know, community ritual routine, how you can apply it to so many different aspects of your life, not just grief and loss, but just even how to live your life in a more meaningful and fulfilling way. Courtney, last thing, last question. I ask this of all my guests, uh, cause I always imagine there's one person who's listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life before you kill yourself. What would you say to them? I would say that make living, make your living stories. I know that in that moment or in this moment that all you can see right now is the pain and the stuff that feels overwhelming but I also think to know that sometimes having that thought is a way to like your plan B, like you think, okay, I can always kill myself if this doesn't get any better. But, and so it might be bringing you some temporary relief thinking about it actually as, as I can take this way out. And at the same time, 
just know that you're underestimating. There's so much more that life can offer you, but that you can offer us and your presence in this world affects so many more people than you know. And there's been too much loss lately. And to have one more person leave the planet, it just makes the rest of us, you know, grieve so much more for you. So please know that your life means so much more than you can ever imagine. And you are touching so many people in ways you could never even understand. So please know that your depression is less of a burden than not having your light here. Even the tiniest pinpoint of light penetrates the darkness. So find your light, find that spark and believe in it with all your heart. And it'll chase that darkness away. If you just keep tapping back into the light. And make a playlist, you know? (laughs) That's the simpler answer that I didn't even think of. But music can pull you right out of that. You're right. Uh, I love it. Courtney Armstrong, this is amazing. I'm gonna, I'm, I, will, I will link to your book in the show notes, Rethinking Trauma Treatment, Attachment, Memory Reconsolidation, and Resilience. Uh, tell people where they can find you. Plug all your things. <laughs> well, my website is called Real World Therapy. And on that side, I have links to some blog articles and, you know, podcasts and things that I've done um, with some of the similar type of content. If, if you like that, uh, of course I'm on Facebook at Armstrong LPC and Twitter um, Armstrong LPC and LinkedIn. If you want to connect in that way, but I love to hear from people. I love to hear your stories and ideas of how you've healed, overcome things and share that with the world. We're all here in this together. Thank you so much, Courtney. Thank you so much, listeners, for listening in, for sharing the podcast, the episodes. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you going to see a therapist, a coach, for you making a playlist, uh, going for a walk, for you just, you have to take a step, just do the next right thing. Call the 1-800 number, S-U-I-C-I-D-E. I've called it twice. I'm still here it is effective. It does work. It does help. It will. There is somebody who wants to hear what you have to say. Your story is valuable. Uh, all the numbers to the hotlines are linked in the show notes. Uh, whether if you can't talk, there are text numbers. There, there are groups that you can attend. There is something out there for you, and there's someone out there who is willing to listen. Uh, go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Uh, and then check out Courtney Armstrong at realworldtherapy.com, realworldtherapy.com, and we will talk to you soon. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Leah.